Al Jazeera Podcasts. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, can humans and AI be kin? We meet Cree artist Archer Pachawis. I would like to take the AI back to the res and like go to ceremonies with it, right? And teach it about our spiritual protocols in the hopes of deepening our relationship. And theorist Douglas Rushkoff. The AI that we launched was capitalism back in the 12th and 13th century. That is the program that is running. And artificial intelligence is running inside capitalism. Indigenous AI, Unnecessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. The International Monetary Fund predicts strong growth for Russia's economy this year, despite sanctions imposed for the invasion of Ukraine. European nations trail well behind Russia in the IMF forecast. So what's behind these figures? Do sanctions actually work? Hello, I'm Adrian Finnegan, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help to define major global stories. All right, let's bring in our guests for today's discussion. From Astana in Kazakhstan, we're joined by Chris Weaver, who is the chief executive of Macro Advisory. That's a strategic business consultancy focused on Russia and Eurasia. From the Norwegian capital, Oslo, we're joined by Arlen Bjortvedt, who's a sanctions expert who founded the country risk analysis company CoRisk. He also helped to write a recent report that investigated how Russian sanctions are being ignored. And from Washington, D.C., Anatole Levin is the director of the Eurasia program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And, uh, gentlemen, welcome to you all. Uh, let's start with you then, Chris. What do you make of these optimistic uh, uh, growth forecast figures for Russia? Well, they look optimistic, but in actual fact, uh, what, what really does numbers show is that the economy is stabilised. Uh, it is largely being driven but with a combination of uh, military-industrial complex spending, uh, which is having, of course, a big impact on the economy, uh, and also the fact that uh, incomes have been rising uh, so strongly last year and again expected to this year, uh, almost a double-digit uh, reeling growth, which is driving consumption. So it's those two factors that are supporting this, you know, optimistic uh, a forecast. Uh, we expect uh, between two to two point five percent growth, so not too dissimilar to the IMF. Uh, we expect that the government will come out with very strong numbers for two thousand and twenty-three. For last year, the economy ministry for, the minister just recently said that he thinks the GDP for 2023 could actually have been 3.5 or even a little bit better. Uh, but it is very much down to the military-industrial complex spending and the recovery in consumption. Uh, it is not a reflection of, kind of a broad economic recovery. It's not an indication of an economy that's you know, that, that's uh, seeing sustained growth across multiple sectors. It's a very specific reason, but it is supportable for several years, provided the oil tax income uh, remains roughly where it is today. Ireland, European Commission Vice President Joseph Borrell continues to insist uh, that, that sanctions against Russia are working. But as we said at the beginning of the programme, it's, it's nearly two years now since the Ukraine war began. Uh, and the sanctions were, were, were introduced shortly after. Um, are they working? Is, is Joseph Borrell right? Well, uh, Adrian, they are working. Uh, as we all know from historical legacy, uh, sanctions do not work like overnight. They take some time to start uh, making their way. 
but what we see is that financial sanctions of Russia are really working. Russia has big problems getting hold of hard currency. They have trading problems. They have inflation in imports. And actually, uh, what we've seen in our research is that, and this has not been uh, very much, much uh, noticed, but actually uh, Russia's imports of the so-called critical list goods, or the most, the 51 most uh, war critical goods, has declined by 60% since December 2022. So 20, December 22 was kind of the peak of uh, Russia's imports, both total imports and uh, war critical imports have been more or less decimated since uh, December one year ago. What we see in the long term, I think all economists agree that the long term picture for uh, for Russia is not rosy. They have basically a long term zero percent growth. GDP is still lower than it was ten years ago. There is a kind of decline in population, there's a decline in scales with migration and everything. But actually, uh, even in the short term, we are seeing now uh, what the IMF is actually kind of documenting is not economic growth is spending growth. So basically what Russia is doing, they are taking money for their pensions fund, they've probably halved their pensions fund, and they are transferring that to public spending on security. And this is not has nothing to do with real organic economic growth. This is not sustainable. This is not something that will drive their economy into 2020, 25, 26, et cetera. This is a very short-term, uh, more or less budgetary uh, phenomenon, and it has nothing to do with uh, economic growth. Anatole, the sanctions were intended to undermine Russia's ability to, to fund its war in Ukraine. Are they doing that? No, obviously not. Uh, you know, uh, Russian military production has increased hugely. They are uh, out-competing the West when it comes to the production of artillery shells, for example, which is critical. But I think it's also worth noting that, you know, when it comes to regime change or even changing critical regime policies, uh, sanctions have almost never worked. Uh, you read a long list of them um, going all the way back to Cuba now for more than 60 years, uh, and they have not succeeded. Uh, the difference is uh, that in those cases, they did do great damage to the economies concerned of Iran, Venezuela, and so on, whereas in the case of Russia, they haven't done that. And I think there, there are other things to be noted here. Uh, the first is, of course, that the economy over the past generation, the world economy, has become very different. Uh, China is now an economic superpower. As long as it is uh, willing to go on buying Russian energy and trading with Russia and supplying Russia with various you know, critical products, and as long as India, also a hugely growing economy, is willing to do that, the West's ability uh, to strangle the Russian economy is colossally reduced, uh, unless, of course, it were actually to impose a naval blockade on Russia, but that would be an act of war. The other thing I think to note is that uh, what's happening in Russia has been called military Keynesianism. It recalls, in certain respects, the boom in America, which ended the Great Depression at the end of the 1930s as a result of colossally increased military spending. Uh, and that is a viable way of boosting the industrial economy, if, of course, you've got the 
uh, resources from the sale of oil and gas to do that. The long-term question, I think, and this is something that uh, Russian analysts are writing about a great deal now, is whether this can be turned into a sustainable state program uh, of industrial development in other fields uh, when the war ends, if it ever does. Now, of course, for that, we, we, we don't know whether this will be possible. Uh, but since so many Western predictions uh, have proved false, predictions or, shall we say, hopes, uh, I think it would be a, a mistake simply to, uh, to assume a priori that Russia cannot do that. Chris, um, what do you make of what Anatole was saying there? Uh, do you agree that, that sanctions uh, almost uh, never work? And, and, and if they, they don't work, what should the West have done to hit Russia's capability uh, to fund its uh, military-industrial complex and its war against Ukraine? Yeah, actually, can I just go back to uh, one step? Uh, I'm just to to uh, add to a comment that was made earlier. Russia is not funding the military uh, spending, the the, the budget, uh, out of savings. Uh, it's it, it's it's running the budget deficit only about one percent last year, less than one percent this year. Uh, the critical element for the budget is the level of oil, gas, and commodity exports, and they're holding up quite well. So it's not the case that you know Russia is burning through its its stockpile of money and is going to end up in a in a, a difficult uh, situation within the next couple of years. The the, the financial reserves are more or less staying intact, and Russia is actually running down its debt. So its financial position right now, which is critically dependent on export volumes for sure, um, is remaining in quite a comfortable uh, position. But in, in, in answer to your question about sanctions almost never work, well, they, they almost never work in uh, to, to deliver on what was the declared intention. In this case, the declared intention was to force Russia into a difficult economic situation so that it would force the Kremlin into uh, rethinking its actions in Ukraine and to stopping its actions in Ukraine. And clearly, uh, that hasn't happened. Um, the reason it hasn't happened is because Russia is such an important uh, exporter or, or supplier of, of uh, hydrocarbons and other materials which are in high demand in places like China and India and, and other Asian markets. Uh, and there's no sign of that let, letting up. Uh, Russia it is offering a reduced discount now compared to what it was offering or had to offer in the first half of last year. Now the discounts are much smaller and it has built up this shadow fleet and other ways of getting the, the products to the Asian customers and to, and to be paid for it. So to that extent, yeah, for sure, you know, Russia is not in the comfortable position of being able to diversify the economy and to grow and to handle all of the demographic issues that it was talking about before this conflict. But it is in a comfortable position in that it can pay its bills and fund uh, the budget kind of requirements that it's now facing. And then one final point is in terms of the future. Uh, you know, clearly the situation remains that it is today. Russia will slip more and more into stagnation. The economy will become even more dependent on military-industrial complex. The narrative in Moscow, of course, is that that's not going to happen, and they're looking at cooperation with this expanded BRICS plus format, which, of course, was added to with other countries uh, from January this year, 
and where the intention of, of Russia and, and China is to bring even more countries into it in the next couple of years and to use that format as an alternative, if you like, to what was a previous dependency and engagement with Western nations. It's far too early to say that that will work uh, or how long it will take to work. But there is a way forward that at least has been discussed, which has got some options. But meantime, the critical factor for Russia absolutely is what are the level of budget receipts from oil exports? That's critical. Ireland, are European and US companies, indeed, I mean, entire nations perhaps, undermining the sanctions regime by circumventing them? And if so, what can be done to better enforce a sanctions regime uh, once it's put into place? So, Adrian, what we found in our research is, yes, uh, European and, and Western, also U.S. companies are circumventing sanctions of commodities, so sanctions of uh, export of goods to Russia. Those goods will uh, usually kind of find a way via third countries, via Turkey, via Kazakhstan, other countries, and they will basically find a way to Russia. But uh, what is working here are actually the financial sanctions. So what we see is that uh, Russia just amid a, a war, an intensive war, uh, drastically reduced their imports of war-critical goods, of the criticalist goods. Um, they have been more than halved since uh, one year ago. And we think the reason for that is because Russia is having issues with hard currency. They're earning more or less. They have a lower exports. Gas prices has been decimated to only a fifth of what it was uh, a year ago. Uh, and we see uh, this kind of a decline in Russia's ability to import. So regardless of uh, to better, which degree commodity sanctions work, we think that we have to look at the commodity sanctions in conjunction with the financial sanctions, and we see financial sanctions, the dollar sanction, the euro sanction, are probably working quite well to uh, reduce uh, Russia's abilities. So I kind of, I, I think we all agree that kind of Russia's uh, long-term economic uh, development has been very bleak, uh, very uh, bad. Uh, but even in the short term, after this spending spree that we see up until the election in, in, uh, in a month, uh, we will probably see much clearer the uh, erosion of uh, Russian productive capacity below that kind of budgetary, artificially uh, uh, surface that we see uh, unfolding now. OK. Um, I, I see Chris... Um, shaking his head. An Anatole, I know, I know, I'll come back to you in just a second. Let me just give Chris a, 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 a moment to come in. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've read this in a few places, obviously, the expectations that Russia is deliberately kind of ramming the economy with high levels of spending, uh, all of which is going to come to an end after the election. Uh, and I just don't see that. Uh, you know, the, one of the reasons why the economy has performed quite uh, very well, like relatively well last year continues, is because of the effectiveness of the state institutions, uh, of the management of the economy. And they've been reasonably transparent. Uh, we can cross reference data with, with importers such as China and India, et cetera. So we, we just don't see that there is a cliff you know, in terms of spending. Uh, Russia, for example, even last year made 140 billion of trade surplus and almost 80 billion of current account surplus. And, and the, at the current oil price, there's no reason why that won't be repeated through this year. Uh, so we do not see a reduction in, in spending. We'd see it 
uh, more even, uh, if you like, uh, through the year, unless the oil price collapses. OK. An Anatole, if sanctions almost never work, as you said uh, in, in your last answer, why, why, why are, they, are they still used? And what impact do they have upon the economies of countries that impose them? I'm thinking specifically here of Germany. Yes, well, I mean, that, that is the critical question. I mean, this started with the United States, and it, it has progressively become a kind of declarative uh, policy, especially on the part of the U.S. Congress. It's a way that the Congress uh, has signaled its displeasure or anger uh, with a range of countries around the world, either for humanitarian reasons or because they are uh, against America or a combination of both. Uh, so it's, uh, and of course, it's also the alternative to war. If for whatever reason you feel that you cannot, as you would have in the past, uh, invaded Venezuela and or Cuba and replaced the governments there, uh, then you impose sanctions on them. Same thing with Iran, same thing with Russia. If you're not prepared to fight, you try to do it by economic means. Uh, now, if this, as I've said, was the equivalent of the British blockade of Germany in the First or Second World Wars, which cut off all German maritime trade, then it would work. Uh, but, of course, we're not prepared to go there, uh, not just because it would be an act of war against Russia, and not just because it would infuriate the Chinese, but it would also infuriate uh, critical Western partners like India, who are so dependent on, on Western oil. So this is a, a policy which has become reflexive, uh, automatic. I mean, the Congress often appears to be on autopilot over this. It's not necessarily uh, a, a policy that has been seriously and systematically thought out. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, this is something to be reconsidered. And of course, on Germany, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like the old story, you, you uh, don't have to run faster than the lion, you just have to run faster than me. And Russia is doing so much better than Germany. And it is a serious question now with so much worried talk in Germany of deindustrialization, the collapse of the German industrial economy, whether in fact, politically, Germany can sustain uh, its existing course, including that of sanctions against Russia. A few minutes left. I want to get a couple more questions in. Uh, Chris, to you first. To what extent uh, is it the ordinary people of Russia who are bearing the brunt of, of the West's sanctions uh, against the country? Uh, and as far as uh, their political support for, for President Putin, has, has it strengthened him? Uh, well, look, there's, there's no obvious impact on, on people uh, right now. I mean, I'm in and out of Russia a lot. I see the stores are full. Uh, the mechanisms to, for, for people to buy goods online from, say, fashion outlets that have left Russia are all fully available. Um, there, there's no, and, and you know, I look at the streets of Moscow, it's not only that they're full of Chinese cars, but they're a brand new uh, Asian and European cars coming in through Parliament Imports. So, th so there's, a, as of now, there is no kind of uh, obvious uh, negative impact or, or any major impact uh, on Russians, other than those who want to travel. It is clearly a lot more expensive uh, for, for Russians to travel outside Russia, and it's more difficult to go to go to most places except down to the Middle East. But for the majority of Russians, I would say no, they haven't really noticed uh, any 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 impact on, on their lifestyle, other than perhaps there's more goods 
with a made in China label on them than maybe made in, in Germany that was was the case. In terms of support for, for the president, well, you know, Russians historically support the state. Uh, when, especially when there's time of, of trouble, as they say. And, you know, the narrative in Russian media is that Russia is under attack by NATO, by the West, and that Ukraine is simply being used uh, as the, the pawn in, in the middle, uh, and that Russia is, is fighting against NATO. So people support the state uh, and are, are quite nationalistic in, in, in that sense. Um, to that extent, President Putin, as the president, gets the support by, by default. But I don't see at this stage any reason to assume that there will be any public protests. Uh, the, uh, although it is worth mentioning that there is concern about a possible next round of mobilization. Uh, we are beginning to see some pushback against that. So the Kremlin will need to be careful not to make a misstep on mobilization as it did in September of 2022. But apart from that, I would have to say the situation in, normal, in Russia today is, is actually quite stable. Arlen, we've talked a lot on the programme about commodity and financial sanctions designed to bring about uh, political change. Um, is there any evidence to suggest that, uh, that sanctions also work as a tool for bringing about a, a positive change as far as human rights are concerned? Well, it did certainly in South Africa. Uh, if we go a few decades back, uh, sanctions can work uh, very much. We saw, for example, Iraq... Uh, they probably had too much effect and were kind of tuned down. Uh, but uh, at all our research uh, shows that the sanctions of Russia are really working quite a lot. First, as uh, I touched upon, um, the dollar and euro sanctions, the financial sanctions, uh, reduced their ability to import and to trade, cost, uh, rise uh, the cost of war, the cost of import, cost of technology, and all of that. Uh, but I disagree with uh, Chris uh, as to the burden of on, on uh, ordinary Russian citizens. They are paying a very high price for the war. First of all, of course, uh, the conscription and the war itself. But if you go outside of Moscow, you would see people dying from cold because of lack of heating and electricity. You'll see people's interest rates on loans have uh, really increased a lot. Inflation has increased a lot. And even petrol in a country like uh, Russia, uh, prices has increased a lot. There is a lot of disturbance of the market uh, mechanism. And actually, uh, I think when the public spending spree is over after the election, when social and military okay. resources spending is kind of right. uh, relaxed okay. again, yeah. you will we're, see uh, economic co problems okay, coming look, to the forefront look, of, uh, also for ordinary We're almost out of time. I just, Chris is shaking his head there. Chris, I, I, look, I've got about 30 seconds left. I wanted to get Anatoly in. I'm yeah. sorry, Anatoly, I might not get back to you. But, but, uh, but Chris, quick, quickly. Three, three quick points. First of all, we do not see uh, spending deteriorating after the election. We do, we do not see any basis for that whatsoever. Secondly, 85% uh, of Russia's trade is now conducted in currencies of BRICS countries, which includes now the UAE Durham, uh, as, as, as well as the Chinese yuan. Okay. So, yes, it has moved substantially okay. away from the right. dollar and euro. And the third thing is, I was actually out in the regions last week. I do yeah. not Qu see people dying from anything. It's Qu normal. Quickly, because the, the news doesn't wait for anyone, and, and, and that's coming up next. Anatole, just, just, just briefly. Yes, I mean, actually, there's been a great redistribution of money to the Russian provinces. Uh, they're doing uh, much better, uh, the industrial zones. 
Uh, and uh, no, I mean, the, the war will continue and spending on the industrial economy will continue after the elections. This is not a, a, a political boost for the economy. Okay. It is a war boost. All right, gentlemen, there we must end it. Many thanks indeed uh, to you all for taking part in the programme today. Chris Weaver, uh, Arlen Bjortfeldt and uh, Anatole Levin. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Katia Lopez-Horayan, Veronica Petroza and Jim Gilchrist. Studio sound was by Vatsil Yaya and the programme was edited by George Joseph, Zainab Bada and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. And thanks for listening. Tune in again on Thursday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, as negotiators discuss a deal between Israel and Hamas, is there hope for a lasting ceasefire in Gaza? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.